0: Right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ruth chapter 4. Thank you, Elisa, for reading that. As you probably have figured out by now, we are finishing our series on the book of Ruth today. Hopefully this has been a helpful book for you. I know it has been for me personally. Starting next week, we're going to start a series in the five weeks leading up to Christmas entitled, All Roads Lead to Bethlehem, with the general idea being that all of the stories in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, are pointing in one direction, and that's towards Jesus Christ. And so, in the five weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be looking at some well-known stories in the Old Testament, and we're going to show what what may be true that there's moral lessons to learn there. Ultimately, those stories are about Jesus Christ. And so, in that regard, what we're about to read in Ruth chapter 4 today fits perfectly with where we're going Because this, too, is on the road to Bethlehem. And no doubt, this genealogy is meant to point us towards Jesus Christ. And so let's pray, and then we'll start here in Ruth chapter 4. Father, we are thankful that your word does not return to you empty, but it accomplishes all that you desire. And so we're praying today that as we study this passage in Ruth chapter 4, we are asking that your word would accomplish exactly what you want it to. And we know that ultimately your word is meant to glorify your son, Jesus Christ. And so we're praying that your spirit would be at work today so that we would clearly see your son, Christ, in all of the scriptures, that we would realize that indeed all things are meant to testify about his greatness. And so, Father, as we study this, give us hearts to, give us hearts to hear, give us eyes to see the truths that we have here in Ruth chapter 4. And ultimately, we pray that as we leave today, we would be filled with worshipful hearts that we would leave wanting to thank you and praise you for your goodness and for your mercy in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think the ending of a story makes all the difference, doesn't it? In fact, oftentimes the dividing line between a great story and maybe even in some cases a terrible story is the ending. Several years ago, some friends of ours in Louisville, Kentucky, that's where we were living at the time, they decided that they would try to get us hooked on this television show called Lost. I'm not sure how many of you have seen that. But they'd been watching for several seasons, and so uh, they were, I think they were motivated by desire to watch the show with us. And so they started talking up this show and how great of a story it was. And so we watched the first few episodes, and we loved it. We loved the story. There's this mysterious plane crash, and they land on this island, and you're wondering, where is this island, and how did they get there, and what is going on? And so, uh, in fact, we were so engaged in the story from the start that over the course of one summer, we caught up on several seasons, which, by the way, this was before we had four kids and we had that luxury at the time. So we caught up on all these seasons and we were totally engaged in the story and we're wondering, where is this going to go? And as the seasons wore on, I was excited to think, how in the world are they going to tie all this together? But the problem was as the seasons were on, I also realized I'm not sure if the writers know how they're going to tie all this together either. And so while I was hopeful at first that it was all going to come together and it was going to be this great ending, by the time we got to the last season, I was a little bit afraid that it was going to end up being a train wreck. And in fact, the last few episodes, I thought, okay, somehow, maybe magically, they're going to tie this all together. But I had this fear deep down that it was going to be a train wreck. And sure enough, I saw the last episode and it was terrible. Now, some of you may have seen the show and maybe you would disagree. Maybe you think it was fantastic. That's okay. But I'm telling you, from my perspective, it was an awful ending. In fact, it, make, it made me question, why in the world did I ever watch this show to start with? This was a total waste of time. But that is the power of an ending, right? If you have a great ending, it can lift up the entire story. But if you have a terrible ending, it can ruin everything that was before it. And I'm sure that lots of you could think of examples, maybe you've never seen that show, but you could think of lots of examples where a terrible ending ruined it for you. But I'm guessing that you could also think of lots of times where you've read a book or you've seen a movie or you've watched a TV show, and the ending was so powerful that it elevated the rest of the story. That's the power of a great ending. It doesn't mean that there's always a happy ending. But it does mean that most of the stories that we like, in fact, I would venture to say most of the stories that you would say are your favorite, they have a memorable memorable ending of some sort. Whether it's happy or not, it somehow ties the story together and makes the rest of the story seem more important. Well, perhaps it's because of this idea of the importance of endings that I first fell in love with the book of Ruth. I love the ending of the book of Ruth. And although it may not be obvious at first, I do think that this ending is both profound and surprising. It's not too much of a stretch to say that it makes the entire story. And that's not to say that up till this point, the story hasn't been memorable on its own. In fact, I think if we were to stop at Ruth 4, verse 16, we would have an amazing story in and of itself. In the book of Ruth, we have a story of death and life. We have a story of emptiness and fullness. At the beginning of the book of Ruth, you have Ruth and Naomi without any husbands and without any offspring, destined to a life of poverty and loneliness. But by the end of the book, with the help of a worthy man named Boaz and the guiding hand of God, the situation has been completely reversed. It's been completely reversed. Ruth is married, and the marriage produces a son. And In the process, security comes to both Ruth and Naomi. After all, they now have a son who will carry along the family line. Not only that will provide security for the rest of their life. And so at the end of last week, when we got to Ruth 4, verse 16, we had this amazing story of completion. In chapter 1, Naomi was empty. In fact, she talked about being empty-handed. And then in Ruth 4.16, the last picture we have of Naomi, her arms are literally full with this little baby, Obed. It's this great story, the story of redemption, the story of rescue. It's the story of God rescuing Ruth and Naomi and in the process using Boaz. It's this amazing change from chapter 1 to chapter 4. Even if we stopped at verse 16, the book of Ruth would be an incredible book. But what comes after verse 16 changes everything. It changes everything. In fact, it's so significant that I would argue it changes the importance of the entire story. It is indeed a fantastic ending. So let's read again here, Ruth 4. We're going to start in verse 17, and we'll go to verse 22. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, at first glance, I would guess that you might think that this ending isn't so fantastic. After all, it is just a genealogy. At least the last five verses are. Verse 17 kind of leads into the genealogy, but the end is just the genealogy. It's a listing of name after name. I had this friend that I met in college, and he went to a Christian high school, and he was telling me about this time where he had to pick a book of the Old Testament to write a report on. Right? I can't remember if it was an oral report or a written report, but he's telling me this story and saying that the book that he just randomly decided to choose to write a report on was First Chronicles. Now, if you've ever read First Chronicles, you probably know that the first nine chapters are genealogy. There are a few comments that are inserted along the way, but almost literally, the first nine chapters are just name after name after name. And the reason he was telling me this story is because it was humorous. Who in the world would pick First Chronicles? It's hard to come up with a report that you could write on First Chronicles. How in the world do you pick something after a list of name after name after name and say, oh, that makes sense, right? How in the world do you report on genealogy? And so typically, I think our attitudes when we come to genealogies in the Bible is that we just skip them. Now, maybe in some cases, we literally skip them. We see them, we're like, all right, let's just go to chapter 10 of 1 Chronicles, right? Or in other cases, we may read them. Maybe we're devoted to reading the Bible. But my guess is that if you're like me at all, when you read a genealogy, you get to the end of, say, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, and someone would ask you, hey, what did you just read? My guess is that you would have no idea what you just read. Because our tendency is just to skip by genealogies. But I would argue there is a reason why God in his infinite wisdom decided to include genealogies in his word. It is no accident that the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are genealogy. And it's no accident that the book of Ruth ends with the genealogy as well. Every genealogy in the Bible is telling a story of some sort. It just so happens that this genealogy at the end of Ruth chapter 4 is telling a particularly interesting and fascinating story. Now, the truth is that for most of the people that are listed here in this genealogy, there's 10 names that are listed. For most of them, we know almost nothing about them. For example, we know almost nothing about Ram or Aminadab. We don't know hardly anything about them. But it's the name at the end of the genealogy, the very last name that's mentioned, the name that was also mentioned in verse 17. It's that name that should get our attention, the name David. It turns out that little Obed, Ruth and Boaz's son, little Obed, who's laying in Naomi's arms in verse 16, ends up being a pretty important figure in the history of Israel because Obed was the grandfather of David. And I'm guessing you probably already know this, but David was a really important figure in the Old Testament. In fact, some have argued that along with Moses, he's one of two of the most important figures in all of the Old Testament. It's hard to argue with that. From God's perspective, it seems that David was the first legitimate king He wrote a majority of the Psalms, and on top of that, most importantly, the promised Messiah was to come through the line of David, and that's where this story starts to get really interesting. That's where the twist comes, because we know that the genealogy of David does not end here. In fact, it continues. In fact, I'd like for you, if you wouldn't mind, to turn to Matthew chapter 1. So we are actually going to double the fun today, and we are going to study two genealogies. All right, Matthew 1. Now, I would actually make the argument that as much as I love the genealogy in Ruth 4, the genealogy in Matthew 1 is fantastic. And I hope that someday we get a chance to just preach through the genealogy in Matthew 1 because it is so rich and it's so meaningful. But let's turn there for now. Matthew 1. What you're going to see here is we are going to see that the same genealogy that appears in Ruth 4 also appears in Matthew 1. Now, my guess is that you know where this is headed. But let's look first at the genealogy that appears in Ruth 4, just so you can see it's almost the same with a few small additions, and then let's look at the end of the genealogy. So Matthew 1, verse 2, Matthew 1, verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and here's where the genealogy almost mimics Ruth 4, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Sammon, and Sammon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Now you'll notice that's almost exactly the same as Ruth chapter 4. It goes on in verse 6 to say, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And then as you'll see, the genealogy goes on and on. Let's skip ahead to verse 15 here. Verse 15, and Eliehud, the father of Eleazar, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob. Here we go, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so we get to the end of the book of Ruth here, and we start to realize when we piece this together with all of scripture, that something very significant is happening in Ruth chapter four. For four chapters, we thought that this was a book about God's love and care for two lonely and poor widows. We thought that this was a book about the character of Ruth and Boaz. But these last six verses clue us in that although those are really nice aspects of the story, there's something far more important going on here. And what's going on is that God was going to great lengths to preserve the line of David and ultimately to preserve the line of the Messiah. And so while at first glance it may appear that God is caring for Ruth and Naomi, and he is, there's something more going on here because not only is he caring for Ruth and Naomi, but he is caring for all of Israel, preserving the line of David. And more significantly, especially for those of us in this room today, he is preserving the line of the Messiah. He is showing his care for all peoples everywhere. This isn't a nice story of God caring for two widows. This is a story of God providing for all peoples everywhere. It is a marvelous ending. And it's one that has multiple lessons for us as well. The first being this one that we've already talked about in the book of Ruth, but one is this that God is working all things to bring about his purposes. Now, this is what I think makes the book of Ruth so spectacular. For four chapters, we're going along and we're reading along and we're engrossed in the story. And we're wondering about Ruth and Naomi, and we're wondering about Boaz, and we're wondering how it's all going to work out. In chapter 4, we're introduced to Mr. So-and-so, and we have all these great characters. It's a captivating story. In fact, multiple occasions over the last several weeks, many of you have mentioned to me that you are really engaged in this story. In fact, some of you have even confessed that while I'm preaching, you'll read ahead because you just can't wait to figure out how it goes. And I just want you to know, that is totally okay. That's fantastic. If you get excited about the Word of God, I want you to know, that is good. I'm encouraged to hear that. Don't feel like you're confessing that. That's fantastic. But I understand why we're wanting to look ahead, because this really has been a captivating story. No doubt about it. But as much as we've loved getting to know the characters, when we get to the end, the rug is pulled out from us a little bit. And we start to realize the story was not so much about Ruth, and it's not so much about Naomi, and it's not so much about Boaz. The whole time, this story has been about God accomplishing his purposes. It's ultimately about God bringing about the line of David, And again, ultimately, the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in light of that, suddenly all the story starts to make sense. It all starts to come together. The famine that sends Elimelech and his family to Moab. The death of Elimelech and his two sons. The faithfulness of Ruth staying with Naomi. Ruth just happening to come to the field of Boaz. The amazing success of the risky plan in Ruth chapter 3. Mr. So-and-so's refusal to marry Ruth. All of that was a part of God's perfect plan. All of that was a part of his plan coming to a perfect conclusion. If even one of those things doesn't happen, then the end result might be different. And we don't end up with little Obed, the grandfather of David, and the great, 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 great grandfather, and I didn't count how many greats there actually are. There's just a lot of them, right? The great, great, great grandfather of a little baby that would be born in a manger and would rescue his people from their sins. Ruth, more than anything, is a reminder to us of the hidden hand of God at work. And we've said this before in the book of Ruth, but it's worth repeating again. It's a reminder that God is sovereign and working out his plan in all things. And let us never forget that while it's true, the hidden hand of God is at work in Ruth, it's also true, especially if we are believers, that the hidden hand of God is at work in our lives also. He is sovereignly, in his sovereignty, directing all all things to bring about his purposes. And Romans 8 would tell us that if we are believers, those purposes also include our good. It's one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture, that for those who are in Christ, he is working for our good in all things. Now listen, we've talked about this before in the book of Ruth, but oftentimes when you're going through it, you can't see the hand of God at work. Now sometimes when you look back, you can see the hand of God at work and sometimes you can't. But the fact of the matter is that God's sovereign hidden hand is working to bring about his plan. So a couple of weeks ago, I gave you this example of how a drop set of clothes hangers likely saved my life from a car accident. Let me give you another somewhat trivial example to show you how God is at work even in the hidden things of life. And although at first this may seem trivial, I don't think it really is. In my early years of high school, I was convinced that there was one girl that no doubt I would marry. She was fantastic, or at least I thought she was at the time. I thought, there is no way I will not end up with this girl. Now, I'll spare you the details of all my teenage drama, okay? But I'll just say this. For a while, it looked like I was going to have a chance, and then at the last moment, this guy swooped in and stole her from me. Now, um... That's probably a little bit of a revisionist history because the truth is, I don't think that anyone else would have said that he stole her. That it was really just me who felt that way. Um, He he didn't do any stealing at all. It probably was actually wishful thinking that I would ever end up with this girl, at least at the time I thought it was. But I'll say this, all that aside, I was devastated at the time. Oh, I was devastated. In my little freshman high school heart, I was just heartbroken. I just couldn't get over this. I couldn't believe it. But when I look back, I want you to know this. I want you to know this. I see the hidden hand of God at work in that situation. I was not a Christian at the time. To my knowledge, neither was this girl. And I feel confident that had that worked out the way I wanted it to at the time, that my life would have been completely altered. In fact, I feel confident that if I would have still been with that girl, I wouldn't have gone to the college I would have gone to. I wouldn't have met the man who shared Christ with me. I wouldn't have met my wife. Wouldn't have the kids that we have. All of those things. And this seemingly trivial example, when you look back, you see that even then, even though I wasn't a Christian, God was preparing me. And in fact, that was one of the events that he would use later on to help me to see the emptiness of this world and to see that hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so when I look back, even though it seems trivial, right? Teenage drama, it seems so trivial looking back. But at the same time, there was nothing trivial about it. And by the way, if you're a teenager... And you feel like, yeah, it's not trivial at all. Like, I'm with you. I understand. I was there. Like, I know it's not trivial. It doesn't feel trivial. When it looks back, it looks that way. But when I see that, I don't see a trivial event. I see the hand of God at work. I see the hand of God at work. I'm guessing that you could come up with examples like that too. Where something that you thought must be the best idea ever didn't work out the way you wanted to. And you look back and you literally thank God that it didn't work out the way you wanted it to. Now, hopefully... Hopefully we are able to see this on an increasing basis. Hopefully we are able to look back and we are able to see the hand of God at work and we are encouraged. I am convinced that it is extremely important that we understand theologically that God is sovereign over all things. I'm also convinced that it's extremely important that we are able to look back and see the hand of God at work. Because those two things, a right theological understanding of God's sovereignty, an ability to look back and see God's goodness in our life, I would say that those two things oftentimes are the means by which we can persevere in future and in current trials. An ability to look back and remember and see God's grace, an ability to theologically understand God's sovereign control over all things. Those are huge as we look towards future trials or as we are in present trials. Several years ago, at one of the churches that we were at, there was a man in our church who, in the span of one day, went from living a completely normal life to going to the hospital and being in ICU and on respirator and all those things. And in fact, despite the fact that one day he was completely healthy, the next day he would go to the hospital and he would never come out. Within two weeks, he had passed away. And I distinctly remember going to that hospital. I distinctly remember going to that hospital and visiting with his wife And I could tell that as she was talking, that she had a wrong view of God, and it broke my heart. And I I knew that this wasn't the time or the place to correct her wrong theology. I knew that at that time, the only thing I could do is just hug her and pray for her. But as I was going to the car, I just, even now, even as I think back this week, I just remember this increasing sadness, because I knew that she did not have the foundation to be able to get through this circumstance, That's not to say that even if she had the right foundation, it would have been easy. But it is to say that I don't know that she's ever been able to navigate past that because prior to that, she did not have a right foundation and understanding of God's control and God's goodness. And so I say all that to say this. It's incredibly important that we are able to understand the book of Ruth now and file it away for later. That we are able to see in this book The hidden hand of God at work, even in a terrible tragedy. And make no mistake, for Naomi, what happened in her life was a terrible tragedy. Right? She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. She's forced to live a life of poverty for a period of time. This is a tragedy in Naomi's life. But we, being far removed from the circumstances, we can look and we can see the hidden hand of God at work here. And we can see that God was accomplishing something far beyond even what Naomi could have imagined. But listen, there will be times where we will not be able to see that happening in our lives. And so we need to remember the book of Ruth. Maybe for the last four weeks it drove you crazy that I summarized every week. But my hope is that by summarizing, this story just sticks with you. And you can't run from it. So that you can file it away. And when difficulty comes, you will remember that the hidden hand of God is at work, even when it doesn't seem like it. There may come a day when, like Naomi, you will feel like God has dealt with you bitterly. There may come a day when, like Naomi, you feel entirely empty. My hope and my prayer is that the book of Ruth sticks with you. And you remember, the hidden hand of God is at work, no matter the circumstances. File this away. Let it resonate in your heart so that when trials and difficulties come, you are reminded that even though you can't make sense of it, that God is still at work. He is still sovereignly exercising his character. Listen, the primary character in this story is not Boaz. It's not Ruth. It's not Naomi. It's God. And that's certainly one of the great lessons that we can learn in this book, that God is bringing about his purposes that he is working all things to bring about his plan. But that doesn't mean that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are just puppets in this story. In fact, that's one of the great lessons that we learned here in Ruth chapter 4, that God uses ordinary, faithful people to do his work. One of the things I've noticed over the years is that as Christians, we have a tendency to uh, migrate or to... think a lot about what it might mean if there was a Christian celebrity we have a tendency to latch on to Christian celebrities so if there's a famous athlete or if there's a famous movie star or famous newscaster or famous musician who proclaims to follow Christ we have a tendency to follow that person and to really be excited about how God could use that person and I'll admit that I do the same thing when that whole Tim Tebow thing was happening a couple years ago I was thinking man God might use this in such a great and powerful way And the reason why I think we think that way is because we assume, we assume that God is going to powerfully use them with the assumption being that the more famous you are, or the more powerful you are, or the smarter you are, or the better looking you are, or the more wealth you have, or whatever the case is, the more likely you are to be used by God in powerful ways. But the fact of the matter is, that's just not true. And Ruth chapter 4 reminds us of that. All of scripture reminds us of that. We have this tendency to think that God would use people who the world would say would be most likely to be used, but that's just not the case. In fact, think about this genealogy here in Ruth chapter 4. In fact, think first of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, there are five women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There are five women who are mentioned. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Now, we could do this same exercise with the men as well, but the fact that there's, there's only five women allows us to narrow in a little bit on the women that are included in this genealogy. And the fact of the matter is that all of them are pretty surprising that they made it to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Most of them are foreigners, and the majority of them have really shady pasts. They have really shady histories. In fact, there's three that are directly tied to this genealogy in Ruth chapter 4. Three of them are directly tied to this, and they are all very unlikely. They're not mentioned by name in Ruth chapter 4, but one of them is Tamar. In Matthew 1, we're told that Tamar is the mother of Perez. In fact, earlier in Ruth chapter 4, Tamar was mentioned. She's the first person then that's listed in this genealogy, Tamar, the mother of Perez. And Tamar's story in Genesis 38, safe to say, is pretty scandalous. Tamar dresses up and pretends to be a prostitute to trick her father-in-law, and through that relationship, that is where Perez comes from. It's a scandal, it's shady, and yet here's Tamar in the genealogy of David and ultimately in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Rahab is not much better. You may remember Rahab. We're told, surprisingly, that Rahab is the mother of Boaz, which is another twist to the story. Right? Rahab is the prostitute who helped the spies to escape Jericho. You may remember that she hung the scarlet cord out her window, and through that she was rescued. Ruth may not have a shady moral past, but there's no doubt that she is an unlikely figure to be used as well. She's this Moabite woman who has no power in this culture. And yet she is the mother of Obed. Listen, these are not the types of people that you would expect to find in the genealogy of a king. And they're certainly not the types of people that you would expect to find in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and yet here they are in both. But I think it's a reminder to us that God uses the weak And he uses the unlikely. And he uses those who are broken. Think about the disciples. Think about the disciples. In Acts, when people encounter the disciples, what is it they say about the disciples? They say, oh, they're so well-schooled and they're so educated. That's not what they say at all, right? Instead, when they encounter the disciples, they say they are uneducated common men. And yet there's something about them that is powerful. Think about Paul. A persecutor of the church, killing Christians, and yet he ends up writing almost half the New Testament. Now why is that? Why does God choose to use people like that? Well, I think the answer in part is found in First Corinthians chapter one. You can turn there for just a minute. New Testament, First Corinthians chapter one, verse 26. First Corinthians 1 verse 26 so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I think First Corinthians 1 would tell us this, that God uses the weak and the unexpected because it's not about us and our power, it's about him and his power, which by the way, should be exceedingly great news for every person in this room. Should be exceedingly great news. Listen, in the days to come, we will continue to talk about the importance of living out Christ in our everyday lives. Whether it's in our homes, or whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in our schools, whether it's in our communities, we are going to continue to talk about this idea of living for Christ every single day. And chances are, at some point, you will be tempted to think, well, I'm not sure that God could use me. Maybe you feel like you don't know enough, or maybe you feel like you have too sinful of a past, or maybe you feel like you struggle with sin too much now, or maybe you feel like you're too young, or maybe you feel like you're too old, or maybe you feel like you don't know how to communicate well enough, or maybe you feel like you talk too much, or maybe you feel like fill in the blank with all these different reasons why you may feel like God couldn't use you. But listen, the book of Ruth reminds us that God can use anyone who is willing to trust him, even a poor, powerless widow from Moab. God can use anyone. The question is do we think that living out the Christian life and making a difference for Christ is dependent upon us and our skill set? If so, we likely will not take many chances, and we likely will be reserved because we will feel inadequate and rightfully so. However, if we think and we come to the conclusion that we are entirely dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, if that is the case, and we believe that God is the one who gives the strength, then we will be willing to take the risk. And rather than using our weaknesses as an excuse not to be used, as an excuse as why God wouldn't use us, rather we will see our weaknesses as an opportunity for God to glorify himself in us. Instead of using them and saying, oh, well, I can't do that because of my weakness. Instead, we will say, because of my weakness, it's likely that God will use me. Because he wants to glorify himself and show his power. Ruth reminds us that ultimately, it's not about us being powerful. It's about a powerful God working out his plan. And the crazy thing is that we get to be a part of it. So whatever background you come from, whatever baggage you bring to the table, just know this, that the book of Ruth reminds us that you too can be a part of his plan and God can use you mightily if you're just willing to trust in him. Now that said, we do have to say that ultimately it's not about us, it is about him and it is about his plan. And that's maybe the greatest thing that we can see here in Ruth 4, that this book, like all of history and all of scripture is pointing us to one person, to Jesus Christ. Although the book of Ruth was written many years before Christ came, I think it's still clearly meant to point us to the hope found in Christ. I suppose it should not surprise us that that's the case, because there have been hints along the way. In chapter 1, you will remember there was all these mentions of Bethlehem, which should have piqued our interest, this unlikely town being mentioned over and over. Of course, probably in the next month or so, we'll start singing some songs about Bethlehem, because we know that it actually took on a pretty important role in the span of history, Right? We probably should have noticed in chapter 1 that Elimelech was said to be from the family of the Epaphrodites in Bethlehem and Judah. The same phrase that would be used later to describe Jesus in a prophecy. Or the countless pictures of the self-sacrificing love of the characters pointing us to Christ. We should have noticed that this book was headed towards one person. But now it comes to this culmination in Ruth chapter 4. Listen, we know that the genealogy ends in Ruth 4 with David. But on this side of the cross, we know the rest of the story. We know that the genealogy does not end there. In fact, as we read in Matthew 1, we know that it continues to the person of Jesus Christ. And in that way, this story is not ultimately about Ruth or Boaz, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I was meeting with a guy in the church, and he was asking me, and this was a great question. He said, So, what's the take home point from the book of Ruth? a fantastic question and for a while we just talked about this issue and we said there may be a temptation for us to say that this is a story about morality right we may be tempted to think oh this is a story about being more like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and we should be more self-sacrificing like them and listen certainly there's some value in that and there's certainly an aspect in which we should try to be more like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz but the point here the take on point must not be about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and it must not be about our morality if we focus on the morality of this story, we're missing the point altogether. The take-home point is that God is working out his plan. The take-home point is that that plan culminates in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And listen, that should not be surprising to us because all of history and all of Scripture is pointing towards one person, Jesus. In fact, that's one of the reasons why for the next five weeks leading up to Christmas, we're doing this third. This series on all roads lead to Bethlehem because I'm firmly convinced that every page is whispering one name, Jesus Christ. Because he is the only one that can rescue us from our sins. In Ruth chapter 1, we said that the shadow of Christ loomed large in this book. But the fact of the matter is that the shadow of Christ looms large in all of the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis 3, the scriptures are screaming out our need for a redeemer. They're screaming out, our need to be rescued. And that's the thing that makes the book book of Ruth so profound. While we are rooting throughout the book for Ruth and Naomi to be rescued, by the end of the book, we realize that really we are the ones that need to be rescued. And while we're cheering for them, ultimately, by the end of the book, I think we see that hopefully we are cheering for ourselves to be rescued too. By the time we get to the end of the book and the genealogy in Ruth 4, we recognize that God is doing something much more than just rescuing these two widows. He is carrying out his plan to rescue people from every tongue, every tribe, every language, every nation, and every people. The plan that involves little Obed, his grandson David, and another little baby that would be born years later in a manger. The baby that would grow up, would live a perfect life, and would die on the cross for our sins. That if we would turn and believe in him, we could be saved from our sins and we could experience eternal life forever. And I think it's fitting that the book of Ruth ends that way. Listen, we should marvel at a God who orchestrates all events to bring about his plan. And we should be humbled that God would use weak people like us to advance his kingdom. But ultimately, we should be filled with gratitude at a God who goes to such great lengths to rescue his people from their sins. So listen, admire the book of Ruth. As we come to the end, admire it for its clever story writing. Whether it's the nameless Mr. So-and-so or this picture of emptiness to nothing or these countless mentions of Bethlehem, there's some fantastic story writing in the book of Ruth, and we should admire that. And we should appreciate the beautiful pictures of self-sacrificing love we see in this book, the self-sacrificing love of Ruth, the care of Naomi for Ruth, the overwhelming generosity of Boaz, we should admire that. And we should be challenged by the examples we see. No doubt, we should be challenged not just to admire, but also to emulate the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. But don't ever forget that this story is not ultimately about Ruth or Boaz, and it's not ultimately about us either. It's about a God who goes to great lengths to rescue his people from their sins. A God who goes to such great lengths that eventually he would send his son to die for us. And that's why I think the book of Ruth ends the way it does. To allow us to see what this book is actually about. It's about God rescuing his people, including us, from our sins. And that is an ending that makes a great story even better. In fact, in some ways you would say that this inning makes all other innings seem insignificant in comparison. God is the rescuer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing book that we have in Ruth. And we are, we're just praying that we would have the courage to see that this ultimately is about Jesus Christ and that we would recognize why Jesus is so important. The fact of the matter is that we know that the reason why all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus is because He is the only source of life. And we know that until we understand that story, and until it grips us in every way, we will never live differently. And so, Father, we are praying, we are praying that we would see Jesus clearly in this book, and that that would change us and motivate us to live differently. That we would be encouraged that you can use weak people like Ruth, that we would be encouraged that you are carrying out your plan, but ultimately we are praying that we would be filled with worship. God, help us to be a people who worship because we see that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.